Welcome to episode 98 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. I'm super excited to be approaching episode number 100 when I have a special episode I'm planning for you. And it, I don't know if you noticed, but I took a little break recently because I was teaching in Italy and then took a little vacation to France. But I'm back and I'm excited to share an interview I recorded while I was in Italy with paper artist Roberto Menino, whose work with high shrinkage fibers inspires me and relates to my own work. The recording might sound a bit different because we were speaking in a big open space, which isn't my normal Zoom recording studio. But here we go. Roberto Menino explores form with an abstract, process-oriented, non-realistic approach. In papermaking, the very fact that there is a molecular change from liquid to solid implies the presence of natural energies that are embedded in the process itself. His hands-on practice enables him to have a dialogue with the nature of things in relation to his own personal motivations. Manino is interested in redefining the boundaries and creative behaviors that handmade paper might play when intended as an integral autonomous art form when as a discipline it becomes self-ruling in respect to other artistic processes such as sculpture, printmaking, relief, and book arts. Working within the practice of papermaking allows him to generate visual, gestural, and tactile structures that often induce a controversial perception of reality. I cannot think of another medium that offers such versatility to the artist. Enjoy our conversation! Well, Roberto Manino, welcome to Paper Talk. Grazie, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, yeah, we're sitting here in um, Monte Castello di Vibio, Italy, and you're from Rome, and it's great to see you. Um, yeah, I'm here teaching, and you came up and gave a lecture last night, which was wonderful, for all the students to see your work. Thank you for doing that. And... Uh, yeah, so let's start at the beginning. Um, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you got into art and then paper. Okay. Uh, I was born in Rome from American mother and Italian father. Uh, so I did my regular high schools and things in Rome. And uh, at pretty early, I, I did desire to to make something with my hands and things. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to go to the Artistica High School, which is, uh, you have the option mm -hmm. in Italy, whether to go to like, uh, you know, classical studies or scientific studies or artistic or technical, whatever. So I've chosen the Artistica High School after trying classical studies. So it was a little, um, conflictual uh, so I switched uh, major mm -hmm. through the years and I had to recuperate to 
catch up right. with the other students. But uh, I wasn't going well with Latin and Greek, and uh -huh. so I decided to switch. That was probably one of my best choices uh -huh. in my life. <laughs> Because uh, I'm an enthusiast, and uh, the moment, but I need also um, to be um, nourished in terms of self-esteem by someone else, and so I need uh, some kind of positive feedback. Mm -hmm. And I found uh, uh, in the faculty at uh, at the high school there was a couple of people that really uh, uh, supported me. In these early years, we are talking about uh, mid 70s, and these people were uh, an art history professor and uh, a drawing professor. And anyway, at the beginning, I, I definitely wanted to work with sculpture, so I was working traditionally with uh, uh, plaster and uh, clay and, and concrete as well. Um, I started figurative, like everybody, in, mm -hmm. like in the academic studies, and then uh, I I was very I had the desire to somehow um, get deeper, and so I looked very early for apprenticeship, uh -huh. which was possible then, mm -hmm. in the sense. Uh, uh, craftsmen or artists would easily take someone to help them out. So I did uh, seven months with uh, a painter helping him to etch his plates. So basically it was a drawing, pre-making apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Traditional way, so working on a copper, uh, you know, doing all the job, transferring his drawing. And learning how to um, uh, etch and etch and cross etch. So it gave me training, copying from masters, working pen and ink. Uh, he wanted me to just etch in one direction, mm -hmm. whatever was the chiaroscuro, the alignment shape things, uh -huh. uh, which was challenging. It was challenging because it would give me mannerist. Uh, beautiful originals prints to copy from and uh, his judgment was you know a bit uh, aggressive rude and so I really got myself into it it was a great discipline right so, so were you you were helping make his work or just doing his work, your own his work his I was work. making yeah. copies from masters mm -hmm. and uh, the target for him was train me to discipline my mark making mm -hmm. and parallel lines without overlapping, clean ends, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and then we passed on preparing a plate, transfer his paintings from photos uh, onto a plate in scale. Mm -hmm. His paintings were figurative painting. Mm -hmm. His name was Riccardo Tommasi Ferroni. So a rather famous Italian figurative mm -hmm. painter. Uh, so I had to, you know, uh, trace all his work and then etch and cross etch in five different directions all the background of the plate right. on the hard ground varnish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
which is a uh, you know, tedious job, but uh, has to be done carefully. So you need spacing. So it, it, I, I got good at it after a few attempts. Yeah. So that was one of the training. And, and you were, so you were still in high school? Uh-huh. And I was, I was 16. I was 16. Or you were just doing that? No, no. I was doing everything at the yeah, same time. Right. Uh, practical age. Uh, age uh, 16, I was my first year in the artistic high school. After two years in I the classical, I think that's the recycling they're doing. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, into into so from the classical studies at 16, I went into the uh, artistic studies and and I started right away this uh, apprenticeship. And at the end of that year, I went to Germany for three weeks to do intensive wood carving practice with uh-huh. a lady sculptress and uh, that was also very good because she had everything at disposal right. because she gave up her artistic career since she had four kids but she had a perfect studio with all sharp tools and gouges and wood and things so I could just stay there 12 hours a day and it was paradise. How so, did you find that? Through uh, a friend of my father uh-huh. which uh, uh, he was a painter and his wife was German and knew this lady. And then uh, I went, uh, the same summer, I went to um, Serravezza, which is close to Pietrasanta, which is northern Italy, upper Tuscany, um, where they were carving marble. So I took a, a full month residency every day Marble carving, marble carving. I tested that too. Beautiful, uh, passionate, tough, mm-hmm. tough on your hands, mm-hmm. vibration. Mm-hmm. I started to work uh, directly with the, you know, ch- chisels, uh, hammer, and then I passed to the uh, compressor because uh-huh. it was too slow. Right. Um, what I found in these early times is that I had the urge both to work, but also a bit of pressure in getting the work done. Mm. So time started to become sort of an enemy, mm-hmm. something to fight against. Uh, so in my practice, I realized that later on, uh, so I, I start with uh, some kind of a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I try to develop it through drawing and these drawings are for me they're not meant to you know be seen as an artwork Mm -hmm. but these drawings are sometimes uh, very important because now I use this drawing to to translate an idea into process making diagrams so I re- literally map down the various steps into a language code I can follow, or if visible, also, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to say I'll do this, then I'll do that, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just pen and ink on regular paper without any fancy things. Sometimes I transfer these drawings on paper, uh-huh, which I think uh-huh. it's, it's an interesting thing. So going back to the origin after high school I I went to RISD, Rodin School of Design, 
and uh, as a sculpture major. And how did you find out about RISD? RISD has a program in Rome. Okay. They have an extension, a small, precious mm -hmm. <laughs> program in the Jewish ghetto, a palazzo change in a fancy building. Uh, something like 30, 35 students, uh -huh. art majors, and it's one of the first programs, I think it was started in 1956. Okay. Uh, this is something in Italy we are accustomed to, in the sense uh, many U.S. colleges want to have uh, an extension All of right. some sort elsewhere, in, and Italy is one of the most... Uh, looked after location for art or other disciplines arts too. architecture yeah. art history yeah. and yeah. the like mm -hmm. so at the end jumping up uh, this uh, the presence of all these colleges american colleges in italy became for me a, a benchmark to uh, you know to work because at the end ended up uh, bringing america to italy instead of going to america uh, having having lived in America much, altogether probably three years, three and a half years. Uh, <clears throat> instead, I've been teaching two years colleges since age 23. So you went to Rhode Island School of I Design? I went to Rhode Island School of Design. And then? I got my degree okay. in sculpture, uh, but when I was there, I, I got really engaged in uh, printing. Uh-huh. I was really in love with printing, and uh, <clears throat> so I came back to Italy and uh, uh, got settled, mm -hmm. and uh, I bought an etching press. Uh -huh. And uh, so once the house and studio was, you know, working, uh, I started to etch, crave for etching, like working with all kinds of plate making, but basically metal, zinc and copper, uh, intaglio techniques, mm -hmm. colograph on plexiglass and things, mm -hmm. and, uh, and woodcuts, and woodcuts. So still a love for wood, but wood and that started to, you know, engage with papers. Right, right. Because, uh, so paper became a very, a real presence as a support for the prints, but uh, I started to work also in shinkole mm -hmm. and techniques. So there was clearly uh, an interest for the matter what that wasn't merely a support, but it wasn't still clear <laughs> to me. So right. I didn't uh, explore handmade paper then. So 10 years of intense printmaking, attending the National Cabinets of Prints and Paper, for classes, uh, printing myself and printing for other people And teaching. I started teaching yeah. printmaking at my premises, so RISD students will come over oh. to my place to etch and uh, to do things. So mm -hmm. it was more a studio than a house. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, that was an incredible practice. It's, it was a, was a gem for, you know, problem solving and things and uh, I realized that I was mm, I wasn't interested uh, much in editioning at the time because uh, that was annoying to make uh, many copies of the same right. 
Oh, Gabor, the there wasn't a market request for that mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I was much more on plate making, interesting mm -hmm. making mm -hmm. plates. And but uh, it, it was tough because you, you know, um, the way I was working is it wasn't. Uh, uh, let's say my execution wasn't like exact. Or precise or pristine, so uh, the project proceeded through approximation. Mm -hmm. In the sense, I have an idea, I'll do the first bite and things, then look at it and decide to correct it, which meant metalwork, mm -hmm. scraping, burnishing, sometimes grinding, lowering areas, forcing things out using dry point, other techniques. So, pushing and pulling the highlights and the darks. And um, I was really interested in the uh, more, let's say, sculptural tone values, uh, rather than, uh, and also line values, but more than a clear, clean cut, pristine design. Mm -hmm. But uh, all these corrections, led to progressive uh, states of a plate, mm -hmm. which arrived to like 18 states. It was, it was a nightmare, a nightmare. Now I see it as a right. At the time, it, it was just a great interest. Uh, some people can, are so disciplined to think, design and proceed uh, on a plate, one state, that's it, and right. it's over. I wasn't. And these were each individual prints, not yes, one on top same. of the other. Yes, When yes, you change yes. the plate, it's a new yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, mostly black and white. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Color always yeah, fascinates color, emotional things, but confuses me somehow. Right. So it was more of about uh, mark-making, mm -hmm. handwriting quality. Mm -hmm. Things. And so let's move to how you found handmade paper. What papers, what were you printing on? I was printing on uh, uh, cotton paper, mostly was uh, Pesha, mm -hmm. which is from Magnani Pesha, which is also the other paper mill near Lucca. Uh -huh. And uh, the other one is Rosa Spina Fabriano. And, uh, and when uh, we, you know, we were young, so when you really wanted good paper, it was Zerkal, which is uh, a Swiss right. paper. Yeah. Uh, Hannemühle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Italian, like a European paper. Right, right. But mostly Fabriano Rosa Spina and Magnani Pesce. Mm -hmm. And so you would uh, take this paper, rip them to size, uh, put them in, in water for like an hour, then take a, a package of them, off the water, put them in a, let them drip and excess water out and put them in a plastic bag uh -huh. for the day after. So the paper, yeah, had to mature and uh -huh. overnight, right. fully moistured, and then passing through the etching press that will be ready for the impression. Right. Okay, so after this, uh, what happened is, uh, uh, at the end, uh, towards the end of the 80s, I started to get back on sculpture in a different way, uh, with uh, 
textile, mm -hmm. soft sculpture, so which was an early love that I developed in the States when I was a RISD mm. years before. So I got back into that because plate making started to become a little tight, mm -hmm. a little limited because everything had to pass through the etching press. Everything had to be inked by hand. That uh, there were uh, something about the process was getting too small, mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. you know, too small a place somehow. So I started to do that, and so uh, for about uh, five years, I did produce a large number of large stretched canvases. Uh, we're using linen and cotton fabric over, um, you know, custom-made wood uh, structures or metal found objects inside. Uh, all these shapes were uh, abstract. Mm -hmm. They were mostly wall relief, not two-dimensional. And they were mostly dark. Mm -hmm. And the, the pieces that were inside stayed inside? Yes. Like they were yes. on the wall so that yes, the canvas would be sculptural. Right. sculptural. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So I would uh, uh, use uh, uh, either rabbit skin glue or, or similar oh, okay. to, to tighten up with plaster. But the canvas, I was working, wetting the canvas with very hot water, mm -hmm. so it would stretch a lot. So I was into stretching things mm -hmm. already, mm -hmm. which is something that reoccurred years after in paper right. So, But I wanted tension, I didn't want the floppiness right. or, right. or loose canvas, like a free tent or anything yeah. like that. And, and then something happened. <laughs> in uh, The first uh, thing happened in 93. I was already teaching at Cornell students. I was teaching drawing. Mm -hmm. Cornell in Rome. In Rome, yeah. In 93, uh, as there was this little, little event, like a, a student of mine went to Capelades in Spain. Uh -huh for a summer class and send me, instead of a regular postcard, he sent me a very small piece of paper and it was an overbeaten linen. Mm. So Capillares is a it's paper, a paper museum. It's an historical paper mill near Barcelona. Right, right. Uh, Victoria Rabal works Runs there. That, yeah. uh, and uh, I saw this piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Which did look different. Yeah. It had some skin quality. Mm -hmm. It looked like a membrane. It was translucent with uh, uh, waves at the edges mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. had something, something almost animal to it. Uh -huh. And I said, "This is what I want." There was something like this little paper piece of paper, I remember having it in the studio for so long. I says, what is this? I want this. I want. It's like a boy, like, like a child that wants uh, a sweet uh, yeah, shop. Right. Or, so there was this. So I, just casually, I started the summer of 1993. Uh, you know, I didn't have uh, Google then, and I right. had no idea about real. So I went to visit Fabriano. 
Uh, and uh, I, I didn't know, but I ended up meeting with Luigi Macella, which we met uh, yesterday, uh -huh. which is this master paper maker that trained there, and looking at him making paper, but everything was so different and diverse, and uh, technology was their technology, and tools were so, you know, professional and right. everything like. The Hollander, the, the presses, everything was oversized and far away. So I, t I started recycling etchings. Mm. So I took my best cotton paper and just taking away the print image mm -hmm. and recycling in a blender. Right. And then uh, so I started pulling my first sheets of paper. And then uh, I wanted them in color. I just add color, but no idea about the fixity. <laughs> <laughs> so, so everything turned out right. red, green or yellow. Uh -huh. So it was a little frustrating. So I tried that that summer. I tried the year after, you know, still pretty much the same way, stapling uh, a fish, uh, you know, mosquito net on wooden frames, but very non-professional. Until uh, still true, a Cornell student of mine says, "Hey, you know, '94." Uh, she uh, she's made that search for me and says, hey, look, you can order this book. It was Timothy Barrett book. Uh, the art Japanese paper making. No. no. Uh, oh, one, uh, no. One. oh, no, sorry. Uh, Dark Hunter's book? No. no. Dark Hunter later on. Okay. Later on, and that was my Bible for a yeah. while. No, it was Sloane, uh, Sloane, Tim Sloane. The art of paper making of an instant. The art of an instant craft. No. Oh. It doesn't matter. Yeah, sorry. It doesn't. It doesn't come back. It was a book. It about was a book. Paper making. So. For art. Bernie. Yeah. Bernie Toll's book. Bernie Toll. Yeah. Okay. And so I studied that book. Uh -huh. Like it was. I had yeah. to go through an exam. Uh huh. And uh, I started understanding a number of things. And then finally, in '96, uh, I, I I was more accustomed with uh, you know internet, and I said, decided to attend uh, uh, an intensive paper making workshop at Carriage House, and that was the breakthrough in this sense. All right. So Carriage House in Brooklyn, New York. In Brooklyn. It was like this five day maybe. It was ten. Ten days. Ten to oh, twelve, okay. twelve, twelve physical days, ten days of workshop. And, and a uh, real variety of techniques. I think. A variety yeah. of techniques. Uh, what I do remember really I liked is uh, working with uh, overbeaten flax, mm -hmm. and also we did the indigo dye with Amanda Degener. Oh, okay. And uh, so there were guests coming in, and it was the first time I saw overbeaten fiber, mm -hmm. uh, and which was the magic that brought me into paper making. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing. I want this, I want this, I want this. I says, how can, can I do it without a Hollander? Uh, I still remember <laughs> the famous phrase of Amanda, just get a beer. <laughs> right. And so I came back to Rome, and by the end of the year, I ordered my Reina, okay. which was a big thing for me. Yeah. And uh, I was very careful not to break it at the beginning, very kind. So know. two pound. Two, two pound, Raina. That was my first cylinder. 
Now I have another Hollander as well. He's a Peter Gantenar. Mm-hmm. Uh, still is um, is a two pound. Uh, Peter Beater, yeah. Peter Beater, from Peter Gantenar from Holland. I bought it in uh, 2013. Uh-huh. Works really well for longer fibers. But the two two the two beaters really compensate each other, complete each other very right. well. Very right. So from '96. I started working paper making and transforming the studio into a paper making studio with all the difficulties that you can imagine because you know didn't have drainage, uh, the meter was up in the open, didn't have a, his own box, so it's noisy, noisy, yeah. you know, right? Everything, all the issues of right, a paper right. maker situation, and uh, and then uh, in '98, uh, a colleague of mine offered me to share a studio that he was offered to rent and I decided to accept this uh, offer so for 10 years I had two studios in mm-hmm. Rome which is a little crazy mm-hmm. but at the end it was worth it because mm-hmm. uh, in one I will do uh, you know the let's say the editing work, the st- keeping the storage, you know. So I was, and the other one I was making the paper. Oh, wow. huh. So that that was that was helpful. Right. Uh, more space, so I could, you know, get larger and things. Build it up, my first press, and then I ordered it because the first one wasn't much efficient, you know, just a screw press with two screws on the end. So mm-hmm. it was a little messy. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, uh, I built up my first molds with various metal meshes and mahogany things, and then I started using plastic grids for that, you know, all the like. And then, luckily, many years after, 2008, when I was in England at Oxford attending a YAPMA meeting, uh, Wookie Hall decided to close his, right. his paper making premises and to sold out all of his more than 200 beautiful custom-made molds from the 30s and 40s. And so there it was a great occasion to buy. Maybe. Yeah, I went with you and, and I got uh, some, yeah. yeah. It was good. Yeah, that's, so that was a Wokey Hole in England. So you just gradually built up your collection of equipment. Right. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I, I then I start processing raw fibers like uh, raw linen and raw hemp mm-hmm. in various ways. Uh, didn't have uh, proper machinery like I was at the beginning. I was cutting. cutting with a with an axe, cutting the rags or the hemp fibers the hemp, to shorten yeah. it. I was more interested in uh, in hemp and and linen and raw linen and raw hemp. So I had a couple of bales. Mm-hmm. And you could get that here? Anyway. I was able, I was lucky, I got uh, a bale of linen from southern Italy, a bale that was sent from southern Italy to to Belgium to be processed. It was 250 kilos, 500 pounds, and they refused it because they wanted minimum 1,000 pounds to uh-huh. be put in. So it was sent back. And somehow through my textile friends says, oh, are you interested in this? They can deliver it 
for free Whoa. because they don't want it back. Right. I said, yes. And we literally rolling down the staircase and still out. And you know, that's a lot of Paul. Right. <laughs> fiber. And so, you know, more than because uh, red paper uh, would end up uh, um, beside the big labor. It was a little bit too soft for me. Beautiful for printing. But uh, at the time, I really wanted the shrinkage. I mm -hmm. wanted translucency, shrinkage, rough looking, you know. Uh, so what that. was the fiber you were exposed to at Carriage House? Uh, they have right. their own uh, uh, type uh, H and uh, type flax. R. Type you R. Flax. Yes, or flax. Right. Flax, abaca, of course. Abaca. Abaca is luxurious, premium abaca. Uh, recently, I bought this uh, uh, big order from uh, Capelados with the uh, sisal, cotton, linen, and uh, Ecuador abaca. Mm. Very nice, very mm. nice Ecuador abaca. Is it raw? No, no, it's, it's all half stuff. Half yeah. stuff. Okay. Yes. And so, yes. So, so. From those initial, well, you, so you have printmaking and then the sculptural linen canvases. I can see that both of those moved into paper. Correct. Right. Correct. So the same interest uh, translated in a new medium mm -hmm. and somehow ought to be reinterpreted, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, we know that, uh, you know, Paper comes from fiber, then it becomes liquid, then it becomes a slurry, then you make a, a membrane, and this membrane can be manipulated, it can be handled while wet. That what really intrigued me a lot, mm -hmm. because not just the creation of this membrane, but the, the fact that you can use it as a skin or as a... Uh, as a plane, so it has the plasticity, elasticity uh, to to retain other shapes. So I started looking at reliefs and things as I I can get that out. So I'm trying to figure out also systems mm -hmm. to to use the paper which were not spoken or uncommon. Uh, so I've always been experimental in my work because I think. Uh, that in a way it's, it's a way to um, re regenerate, be juvenile somehow mm -hmm. into into a process. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you, you get you know you get stuck in formulas, formulas, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I was looking at that intaglio there, that wooden uh, intaglio. Says, how can I get that kind of thing in paper? Hey listeners, let's take a little break here, and I want to let you know that my new book, The Art of Papercraft, is now out in the world. The book offers a rich variety of projects that will delight crafters, artists, and designers alike, including paper votive lights, pop-up cards, folded paper gift boxes and envelopes, woven paper wall hangings, miniature one-sheet books, and much more. If you'd like an autographed copy, you can order that directly from me at helenhebertstudio.com. 
And if the autograph doesn't matter to you, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. It's also available on Kindle. And by the way, my book, Paper Making with Garden Plants and Common Weeds, has also just been released on Kindle. And my other papermaking book, The Papermaker's Companion, has been available on Kindle for a couple of years. Now back to our conversation. Using the paper as a, a plastic three-dimensional membrane that can import pattern, texture, different and the like. And so the great engagement is this experimental search to try figuring out things. And, and the lovely thing that I, f- I think makes paper making a unique <clears throat> discipline is that it has 2,000 years of history mm-hmm. that we can use and you know, mm-hmm. import and drag and drop all elements together to whatever is your recipe. But also, since we are creative, we can be pathfinders and find new ways of conjugating all this past into new things and adding our own. And also taking the knowledge from other disciplines like printmaking or sculpture or mold making and the like and inserting them into the paper making process. So when I go to a place like Fabriano where they are perfect master paper making, we were talking about that with Amanda yesterday, we get bored a bit because right. you know, we, we are already on a creative side, they are on a production side, mm-hmm. which are two different ends. At the same time, they are so stubborn and mm-hmm. precise and technically acknowledged uh, in their premises that they, you know, certain solutions that they find can be uncommon, can be very resourceful for us, okay? Right. And then we'll, you know, we'll play, we're players, right? right? right, right we play right, a lot of right. music. They have <laughs> their own scheme. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, it's interesting. So I'm very curious about uh, uh, how people are doing things mm-hmm. and also always keeping an eye on my own search to see if that something can even, you know, I do the same with uh, any kind of craft. Uh, I teach wood carving, I've been teaching uh, print making, paper making, uh, uh, abstract, uh, figurative, figure figure modeling. Mm. I thought of drawing, mm-hmm. sculpture, mm-hmm. and the like. So <clears throat> I like many disciplines, uh, but uh, I think every every te- technique, every technology, every discipline can be supported in paper making. If uh, even like leather work or mm-hmm. upholstery, right. or you know. Uh, metal raising, copper raising and things, and <coughs> forging paper. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, paper is so versatile. 
Well, the, I met you the first time in Banff, Canada, at an international papermaking conference, IATMA. And yeah, you showed this video, Paper Relief, which you just told me is available online, and I'll put the link in the show notes. It's on Vimeo in two parts. And um, it was really exciting to see that film. That was several years ago, 2005. And yeah, some really innovative techniques. And I remember just, yeah, being blown away by, um, talk about the way you use hot sand. And you had in that video, you were talking about this last night, but you didn't mention that you, I think maybe first or maybe second, use the hot sand at the beach. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> All of that. Um, I, I did, uh, um, um, I had some experience with uh, uh, aluminum casting uh, in uh, RISD in the oh, States, okay. uh, where, well, you know, of course, it's different. So you were working with uh, like a styrofoam construction, various kinds, and you would uh, create a b box and you would put this uh, styrofoam sculpture inside and then uh, prepare this chemical mix of the sand. Uh -huh. and toss it into the box around the object and then the sands will harden. Right. Then you put it into a kiln so the styrofoam gets burnt out mm -hmm. and then you will pour liquid aluminum in it. Okay. Okay. This yeah. is okay. Yeah. That's how I said, who sand can be right. the mold. Sand right. can be the mold. Alright. And uh, so when I was working with this high shrinked fibers and I wanted, I'm, I'm a relief maker, I'm not a painter or she mm -hmm. I like relief of various kinds. So I was interested in relief, but then I saw, okay, but the paper stretches, so you lose any kind of in and outs. It stretches like a drum, mm -hmm. doom. Mm -hmm. So you lose the highs and lows, the right. inner cavities, the undercuts. So I said, how do I get them? Mm -hmm. And so, so you have this, uh, you make the paper, you make it strong, you press it, and it has to be well pressed. And sometimes a double coat, two so sheets of paper to, mm -hmm. to get, uh, not just thicker, but the Stronger. two directions, uh -huh. yeah, it makes it very strong. Uh, so paper has to be still moist, well pressed, have a 20 ton press, so nothing like a 100 ton press. Right. If you try to, if you press it too much, then it's, it won't work. Uh -huh. If you press it too little, like with a screw press, it's tricky because it's weaker. Right. It's too wet. Uh, yeah. yeah. It has so, to be just right. Right. It has to be just right. Yeah. And so after you press it, and also it changes if you press it on felts or you press it on pellons, because if you press it on felts, it will retain more water. And uh, on pellon, it's harder and smoother. Mm -hmm. Is, in a way, it's better. And, and then you have a relief, various kinds. A relief made of found objects or existing relief or whatever. Motive, a decoration, a mm -hmm. grid, mm -hmm. an abstract pattern. Whatever. Mm, and then you take the sand. I use marine sand that I wash several times to get the salt out. Mm -hmm. uh, I take it from the beaches near Rome. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. nothing, not going far and uh, it's very fine and uh, even if it has 
some iron because it's visible the darker particles and never found any rust uh -huh. because somehow it does not penetrate and right. it doesn't stay in contact for too long right so i cook it on a hot plate uh -huh. until it smokes so it's really hot you can't touch it you burn right. yourself and then uh, i put the relief on a printing hot plate mm -hmm. so you have heat from underneath and uh, I, I take my paper I wrap the object on the sides and in that case I use glue on the sides to wrap the object almost like you would uh, uh, shrink wrap a wooden frame right <clears throat> and then uh, so you have this situation like that yeah eyes High relief, low relief there. And then you literally pour the sand on top. If you, of course, the, the paper is flexible up to a certain point. Right. So if you put uh, four kilos instead of two kilos, you might just break through. Right. And, uh, and you leave uh, the sand on top for like half hour and then the sand after it's cooled off you brush it away mm -hmm. and you put another batch of sand mm -hmm. and you have to do this until you see that from the color of the paper it's that dry. the relief is dry sometimes you have to do it three four times so and the heat is wicking the moisture and the sand is heavy so it's yeah, two things right yeah. and you when you remove the sand you see that the part that's in contact with the paper, it, it's moist, and you're brushing that right, away, right, clearly, right, right. and you put extra sand. Right. And you, but you have to do that quickly, because the moment you remove the weight, the paper is free to shrink. So you have to put the weight right, right back on. Right. And do you think the... And, and sometimes I, just to, to mm -hmm. finish, sometimes I put a, a, a metal plate on top. For added weight. To add a weight to yeah. stabilize. Uh -huh. And so I'm just thinking about that in comparison to the vacuum table. Like, what are the advantages? You could do higher relief, maybe, or you can do higher. You can do a higher relief. Uh -huh. uh, a vacuum table is a great tool, um, but uh, the problem is you, when you turn the vacuum on, you get a beautiful effect. Then you turn the vacuum off. You're taking a lot of water out. But then, if you're working with that shrinkage paper... It's not dry. It's not yeah. dry. And right. when it's, so it's going to dry, it's going to stretch flat again. Right. So you lose all right. the cavity details. So that's where... The, you could even do things on the vacuum table and then put the sand. Right. Eventually. Right. Right. You know, you can right. combine. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I got really involved uh, with this hot sand casting for a project uh, which is called the Graphite Suite, uh, which is a 2008-2009, so I made more than 150. Oh, those were all done with the sand? Right, oh, right. Okay. Well, some of them needed the sand, others didn't, uh -huh. because depends if I wanted cavities, right. concave, convex, you know, they were all wall relief from found objects, so they were assemblage of various objects, wood, metal, glass, ceramics, plastics, anything. Yeah. anything. So it was a camouflage of the original 
of the original uh, uh, object and of course the object was uh, somehow uh, decontextualized mm-hmm. and then I would treat them with graphite and burnish them. Right, and we'll put a link to images in right. the show notes. It's on my website. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so how do you how do you decide what you're doing next? You're, you seem very project-based si. series. Uh, and, well, um, and uh, you work full-time teaching, I, I work more or less? Uh, well, full-time in the sense uh, uh, um, I have... Uh, many uh, appointments uh, as, as a faculty with uh, in this moment with four different schools so it gets a little crazy yeah. but only work right now for example three days a week very okay. intensively mm-hmm. like up to nine and a half hours right. a day but after those three days I have a very long weekend right. Right. also working with um, American schools and then spreading the voice. Uh, I have uh, assistants or people that want to take internship. Mm-hmm. So I now have an intern from Cornell. Mm-hmm. Last semester I had an intern from Temple, Temple okay. Rome, Cornell yeah. Rome. And they're, you know, a great support because you know how physical, you know, the workload right. is. <clears throat> so how do I have? I'm disengaged from like a gallery that so I have several places that has have my work for sale but uh, it's not like a uh, half contract or a project you know mm-hmm. project with a gallery anymore so I'm very free into whatever I want I could say that I move erratically mm-hmm. <laughs> among uh, my uh, field of actions, which ranges from, you know, we can call them book objects or warrior reef to larger pop paintings of that kind, and uh, that might end up in, into installation. Right. And uh, so, for example, I've been working on these book objects, and now I will be going back into large pool paintings and uh, there is always something experimental in mm-hmm. my work which somehow keeps the light on you know right. keeps me aware uh, so what's the I, reason I go, you're I, moving? I go back to to loops yeah. and loops to the right. same right. topic subject matter interest in time Yes. Right. So I know you have an exhibition of these book objects right now, which are at Loyola University. Loyola University in Rome. Yes. And uh, when does that end? Uh, October seventh. Okay. So that this episode will come out. uh, You have some pictures of it on uh, on my Facebook uh, page. Okay. Yeah, really interesting uh, shrunken pages. Yes. And. Mm-hmm. I've been with that. I've been working with, uh, <clears throat> uh, so, you know, my work. I think I think is self-referential in the sense. If I like paper and I like making paper, and then uh, I can simply talk about 
me making paper. <laughs> so it's uh, self-referential this way in the sense uh, I like a post of paper or even looking at it because it gives me a visual pleasure mm-hmm. or it suggests me what to do with that paper. And, right. and then you realize that what you really like are the deckled edges. Mm-hmm. And so why not working with the deckled edges instead of the facade of right. the page? So I said, okay, let's start to develop a way to emphasize the beauty of the deckled edges within a single object, which of course might resemble an air-dried old book. Right. So you're saying it's a post of paper and each (coughs) page is um, We'll show images. It's hard to describe. Basically, I'm denying... I haven't invented anything. Many paper makers have done this kind of thing. But switching the attention to the edges instead of the front of the page. It's it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, especially with free shrinkage, uh, you're developing uh, a three-dimensional work. And so a flat page multiplied many times, cured during the drying, can be shaped, can be manufactured mm-hmm. in order to uh, to be uh, a three-dimensional work, a war relief or something else. Still, you see it's paper. Right. But it's paper used in a different way. Mm-hmm. This is, I was mentioning this in the lecture yesterday, what I liked of the American so-called attitude, which now it's, of course, all the paper makers in the world are creative like that, but that at the beginning, the Americans were, especially first pioneers, the first one to <coughs> undermine the use of paper making right. for, for say, per se, as a, as a, you know, sheep production, even more or less decorative, more or less pristine, and use it as, a, as an artistic discipline by itself. Right, right. So mixing things up, taking one technique, uh, corrupting it, corrupting it. Right. Don't you wonder, I always wonder about the early paper makers who were only making sheets of paper. They dropped one on the floor or something. You know, these creative things must have happened. But that was just garbage to them. That yeah. was just garbage for yeah, them. Well, the paper maker tears, oh, what a mistake. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And we take it, yeah. And so you said you're moving to pulp painting now. What, well, is yeah. that for a project or? No, I I want to uh, combine uh, somehow this last uh, series of about uh, twelve, uh, uh, let's so-called artist book, uh, mm-hmm. artist object, uh, like see artist object. <laughs> I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, which are focusing on decal edges. I would like to make. Uh, some uh, pop, I say wall, wall, uh, wall panel work, something large, composite, made by many small sheets mm-hmm. where pop painting is. Mm-hmm. So somehow you'll see a lot of deckled edges, but okay. you'll see a major, larger composition. Mm-hmm. So that means that I will be producing a lot of similar size sheets working in pulp painting with them, with colors, and then 
assemble them dry. So post-editing, yeah, post-wet uh, floor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, it's the first time I'm speaking about this uh-huh. with you, so I'm uh-huh. trying to find the words to say. Uh, but again, uh, I start from a vision, then I develop drawings, then I make, uh, uh, how do you say, um, a process sequence. Right. I mine it, and then I, f- I try to find all the variables right. that could uh, uh, that could be done, and and then I get going. Right. And, and so, are you saying? I know your work is mostly abstract, but will you have a plan of how these go together before, or you will just make all of them and then figure out how they are arranged, uh, or you don't know? What no, what uh, I generally do. I have a general plan. So, for example, I'm thinking of going from light to dark, from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. That was my idea. And uh, I'm thinking of aligning... Uh, like say, a grid? Yes, yeah. something like a grid. So everything will be mounted on a panel that you do not see. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so you look at something, at the end it will look like rectangular. Mm-hmm. A large rectangle mm-hmm. made of hundreds of mm-hmm. sheets, where uh, the top part of the sheets will be flat and the bottom part curled up. Uh-huh. So there will be a combination of free shrinkage and control shrinkage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So probably make paper for two days intensively, get to some hundred sheets. Uh, press them out and then reassembling them on a panel Mm -hmm. and letting air dry Mm -hmm. with a certain kind of ventilation, clamping them, putting things. Because, yeah, what that really makes me uh, alert is the momento where the sheet of paper is wet before it dries. Right. Then something clicks on the other one. It becomes a very exciting moment. Yeah. And so then I try to figure out many ways to mm-hmm. manipulate and, and control or let it loose. So it's like giving order to chaos on one side. At the same time, it's a continuous dialogue with wind, heat, moisture, and, and the final work. And... Uh, I would like uh, the paper pro- product, the paperwork, to to retain all this process without being uh, too controlled or too free. If mm-hmm. it's like I don't, if if you let paper go by itself, bleh, you know, right. there is no intention. No, right. I want to put my yeah. intention on it at the same time. Show a little bit of what it. Let's make a deal. Yeah. Let's yeah. make a deal, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. Right. So, um, right. Cool. Okay, we're gonna wind down, but I wanna. Um, a lot of people visit Rome. Yes. And I know you have this permanent installation. Yes. Near the Trevi Fountain, where right. a lot of people go. Is that ever? I know it's in a private building, but is it ever open for viewing? Or? Oh, we. Uh, it's okay. The work. The things. The thing that works like that. The National Time of Prince, of course, they have a mailing list 
and they invite their subscribers and people that are referenced, uh, you know, of course, people related to uh, the world of printmaking, etching, and collectors and uh, cabinet, you know. But uh, so they have their events and they host them in this huge, beautiful uh, 1720 uh, Sala Dante Hall. Uh, I can arrange. Uh, I can arrange visits mm -hmm. with outsiders. Mm -hmm. um, I, I never had someone that asks. You have to email them and say, "Can we visit such and such, you know, Saladante right. for the streams installation?" So I can organize uh, sort of a private visit. So as we done previously through mail at the Istituto Centrale per la Grafica, and which is uh, the ministry, because mm -hmm. you know it's their own premises. Right. Uh, so that's a limit. It's not open to everybody, right. okay. but uh, they won't say no if you organize the visit and you know mm -hmm. with their schedule mm -hmm. and things. Yeah, that, that was a great uh, uh, endeavor. It was a big, was a big job. Yeah, yeah. Job, yeah, and you have a short video called Streams. Yes, about short, that. Yes, and it's three different three different sculptures that they installed in 2013, and they're permanently installed in this uh, in this huge uh, uh, late Baroque uh, place, mm -hmm. which overlooks the Trevi Fountain. So if you open the window, mm -hmm. you are uh, like tourists who will take pictures at you. Right. Okay, so you have the the, the fountain below you, yeah. and the fountain is resting on your own bil on the building where you are in. So looking at the Trevi fountain is the wall on the right. Right, right. Okay, cool. And we'll put a link with some images for yes. that too. And then um, the last thing I want to ask you about. Well, you talked about wind and air, and I remember in this video, the paper relief video, that you had this, I've never seen anyone do anything like this, putting a straw oh, in yeah. between two air sheets bubbles. of paper yeah. and blowing air in. Lovely. It's fun. Did you, did, I know that was just shown in the video, but did that lead to work as well? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I never shown this work. I have probably... Um, something more than a dozen pieces mm -hmm. at the studio. I, I simply call them air bubbles. <laughs> so describe that process. Yeah, uh, you need... Uh, mm, what I did, I used uh, uh, raw flax, like Taipar, I think is mm -hmm. the one, the kind, uh, medium beaten in, uh, in Arena Hollander. And uh, so Prague, you... you prepare two sheets and you press them and after you press them and of course they can have pop uh, paintings on it you can have you know anything you want uh, after you press them of course they somehow they have to match and you uh, you couch the second sheet on the first one inserting in the couching a regular plastic straw Right. For drinks. Right. Okay. Put it inside at least like a couple of inches to be sure. So you're double cooching. Uh, you're and double you, cooching. You put some glue around the edges. Uh, no? Sometimes I did. Sometimes I didn't. Okay. 
because if uh, if you know the pressure is correct and the fiber is proper and things what I only did with a brayer uh-huh. just a, a simple brayer a small brayer pressing strongly progressively uh, along the edges uh-huh. you're practically sealing them you right. know right. cellulose will you know in contact with each other yeah. they really like <laughs> yeah say hey you friend right so basically i'm creating a at least half an inch seam mm-hmm. all around. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that can be shaped, can be figured mm-hmm. out. You, already, you don't have to follow exactly the the, 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 the shape of the sheet. You can edit right. that. Right. You know, everything is variable. After that, you simply blow hair, and you see this big bubble yeah. developing. Yeah. And then you have to, you know. Keep blowing until you're coming to the side, and then you have to be quick in ejecting the the, the straw and with the brayer Sealing. closing the exit, uh-huh. and then lifting up the entire thing and pin it up on a line. Okay, this is how I did it. Mm-hmm. Of course, there could be hundreds of ways. Right. You know, you, with the brayer you can do multiple right. pressure lines. Uh, multiple yeah. Uh, yeah. things. Uh, the interesting thing is that some of them I made them with thinner paper, and they're translucent. Mm-hmm. So and the bubble is still there. Right. So if they had the light, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I tried it after I saw that. It's <laughs> very cool. It's playful. I mean, you really work with air. I don't know. Of course, it's. It's a vulnerable process in the yeah. sense you're playing with little things. If uh, you know one edge it gets open, the yeah. entire right. bubble goes away. And uh, but probably there are a number of ways to inflate and things. I have a dream one day, but I will do it. <laughs> I, I did some carbon graphite structures mm-hmm. using kites. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I stretch a paper on it, and then you dry for a project. Uh, it's on my website. Okay. And uh, it's a 2000 project. Uh, and then I would like to do that with the high shrinkage paper and make the kite fly mm. and see what happens mm-hmm. <laughs> if it flies, cool. if it's not heavy enough. Right, right, so, right. So right. and next the structure. The interplay between air, wetness, real air, up up in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And main paper kites, the, but uh, different. Yeah, there's a whole kite organization. I don't no. know if you know the Drachen Foundation. Drachen is dragon no. in uh, German. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, flying paper. I love it. Flying paper. And there's the inflatable balls that... I think it's a Japanese technique. I know oh, how to, to do inflatables. Yeah. So you, but I have never done it with wet paper. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, and just mention briefly what I think you have. You're teaching some paper making now after yeah. all these years uh, in your college classes. Yes, uh, I uh, had a deal with the dean of Temple Rome. Uh-huh. Temple Rome is an extension of Temple University in Philadelphia. And uh, they have about 250 students every semester. 
and is located very near Piazzale Flaminio, so downtown. Mm-hmm. And they have great studios, but uh, we had the switch from sculpture and they proposed paper making. Uh, so the, dean, the, the deal with the dean was, okay, you start teaching in your own studio, let's ah. see the feedback of the students and okay. then if the feedback, which was good, okay, after, you know, three semesters of teaching in my studio, they decide to, you know, invest on a um, paper making okay. studio. So buying a Italian Hollander, Italian press, uh, blah, 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 progressive getting the molds, getting everything, the drying system. So now we are fully equipped. The course uh, cannot accept more than 10 students at a time. So they're undergrads, American students, mm-hmm. generally junior seniors uh-huh. from uh-huh. Temple, Tyler, uh, and various other colleges that send their students in Rome. And uh, it's on a semester base, so it will be something like four and a half hours a week, uh, eight to one, no, five hours a week, and for like 16 weeks, something like that, fall and spring. And the students come for one semester? Or the one students come, the student one comes from one semester. So it's the same course, basically. Yes, yes. And it, twice every a year, year mm-hmm. we a slowly change yeah, yeah. the syllabus, but that's the thing. And the good thing is that, you know, we make paper, we process fiber, they learn how to make colors and things, da, 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 da. And then they have, uh, uh, they work in teams and they make paper mm. by their own during the week. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, without me. They have access make a to mess. the studio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they love it. They yeah, love yeah. it because they come from pre-making, book arts, you know, paintings, uh, you know, paper crossing boundaries. Right. Um, right. And maybe some of them will get the paper bug. The paper bug. Oh, <laughs> yes, the famous paper bug. That's right. Okay, well, Roberto, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck with your next project, and it's Grazie. great to see you here in Italy. Thank you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. 